communication is an essential element. And for a pathologist, a diagnostic pathologist, communication is totally self-evident because yeah, the clinicians have to be made aware of what you diagnose. But also for the, a young scientist to go out there to, to talk about what you've done and to write that up it has been, for me, a fun thing. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Pathology is a dynamic discipline in that it is always evolving and there always seems to be something new to learn. At the same time, it's also an international discipline, which has certainly been true over the last two years. My guest today is Dr. Fred Bozeman. Dr. Bozeman is a pathologist in the Netherlands, and you'll hear how he's worked in quite a few other countries. And you'll hear his thoughts on molecular pathology and why he believes it's absolutely essential for the next generation of pathologists. All right, here's Dr. Fred Bozeman. The place I want to start with you is kind of as you were starting medical school, I I read that you initially intended to go into surgery and then switched over to pathology. So I guess let's start with kind of where did your interest in surgery come from? And then we'll get into how you discovered pathology. Okay, so uh, ever since I was a little boy, I had an interest in going to medicine. I think that was related to uh, a dear aunt I had who, uh, when she was in her 30s, contracted uh, tuberculosis. And the secondary tuberculosis was uh, affection of the spine. And uh, she had to be in a, in a hospital for a long, long time. We fairly uh, regularly uh, visited her, and I think that's where I realized that uh, I was attracted to uh, the care for people. And the uh, simple perception, I think, of, of, of uh, the medical doctor at that age is, is like uh, the, uh, the heroic activities of a surgeon. So I think that's the background of my early interest in surgery. And so uh, when I entered into medical school, the idea was uh, I'm going to become a surgeon. And I was not distracted by any other discipline during, let's say, the first uh, five years of uh, medical education. The system of medical education in the Netherlands is a little bit different from that in the U.S. So the curricula uh, are, are quite a bit longer than they tend to be in the United States. Now, mm-hmm. once... Uh, I entered into, let's say, the the, uh, the, the more clinical phase, the, the, the final two years of um, uh, medical school, uh, being confronted with um, more cl- uh, clinical uh, disciplines. A lot of other things uh, I was attracted to. But it was, things really changed when, f- for the rotating clinical flagships, I had entered into, uh, by chance, entered into a period that I had to wait. And my class of 63 uh, was still in the seven-year curriculum, and the class of 64 was in a six-year six curriculum. And so uh, there were two uh, classes that entered into the clinical phase at the same time. And so it was decided by the dean of the medical school that uh, there would be a lottery so as not to disadvantage those that entered into the, into the new shorter curriculum. I had a waiting period of six months, um, had to 
uh, think what to do then. And by chance, I ran into the option of uh, doing something that was kind of uh, the starting phase of a residency in pathology. It was not a very uh, conscious choice. It was just a possibility to have, let's say, uh, six productive months. And that's where I was confronted with uh, uh, what pathology uh, really means. Uh, it was mostly doing autopsies. And uh, that's where I learned to appreciate the, the, uh, the impact autopsies can have on the practice of clinical medicine uh, and also on uh, uh, teaching. It happened once again, uh, again a year later uh, due to the same circumstances. And so uh, by the end of my medical school, getting my MD degree, I had had a year of experience in, in pathology already. Also, I started to do a little bit of, of research by then. And then Toward the end of the second uh, six-month period in pathology, uh, I, I was invited into the, into the office of the chair of pathology in Leiden Medical School. And um, he said, you are made for pathology. You, I, I invite you to become a resident, uh, to train as a pathologist with us. And I was so shy, bashful, that I didn't dare to say no. And so that's how I ended up in pathology. And uh, in hindsight, it couldn't have been better. Uh, I really was made for pathology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it. I, f I feel like having that, I mean, almost a year's worth of experience before even starting residency, do you feel like that gave you an advantage then going into residency? Absolutely. Uh, it it uh, gave me kind of a head start. And uh, it also facilitated uh, my research activities. Uh, um, Things were pretty liberal uh, in, in those days. In, in, it, it, it's the same in Europe as in the United States. Uh, the requirements for residency training are, are pretty strict. In, in those days, one had the, quite a, the slack. And so I was allowed to continue my research activities. Uh, and that, that was basically because I had a, a head start of a year relative to the other residents. Uh, you also earned a, a PhD in cytogenetics. And what what was the time period of that? Like, when, when did that happen? Well, you can, as I was just uh, referring to, uh, my uh, research activity started uh, in parallel with my uh, residency training. Uh, in those days, the Institute of Pathology in, in Leiden Medical School had uh, also the responsibility for a, a cytogenetics lab. And this was uh, in the, the, the very early 70s, uh, the period where cytogenetics uh, expanded quite a bit with the development of new methods of uh, identification of chromosomes and of, of chromosomal abnormalities. As this was part of the package of activities in the Department of Pathology, uh, I was attracted by looking into uh, the the new uh, methodologies available for karyotyping. Now, what I did in those days was to measure the, the DNA content of individual chromosomes. In, in, in nowadays, that would be quite laughable, the tools with which we did that uh, in, in those days. And it, it, it uh, resulted in some interesting uh, discoveries uh, but nothing that ever um, entered into, let's say, cytogenetic practice, because uh, in those days, uh, the Q-banding and a little bit later, the G-banding uh, techniques for 
uh, chromosomal stain uh, were um, discovered, and that facilitated nicaryotyping uh, quite a bit. And so, towards the end, I, uh, when I finished my thesis, the feeling was uh, cytogenetics was interesting, but it's a little bit remote from uh, pathology. Uh, let's say histopathology, uh, which was uh, my my main interest in, in pathology. Uh, and so I left cytogenetics. And in hindsight, that's not the stupidest thing I could have done because uh, the, all through my career, I've been very much interested in cancer. And it was about a decade later that the first papers came out uh, that indicated that uh, cancer is a disease of genes and uh, I might have stayed, if I had stayed in, in cytogenetics uh, slash uh, pathology, uh, my career might have been quite a bit different. It, it's been it, it very passionate. I've been very passionate as a pathologist anyway, so it, 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 nothing of a disappointment there. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was this kind of, you know, studying cytogenetics and you eventually later got into molecular pathology quite a bit. Was this kind of the, the doorway into that? So that was the doorway into that. So let's say uh, diseases uh, with involvement of genes uh, had an interest uh, early on in my career. It seems like it was shortly after residency then in, in, uh, that you had the opportunity to work at the University of Suriname. And yeah. I'm, cu I'm curious about this, first of all, like kind of when that was, and then how did that opportunity come up? Well... Uh, as I indicated, uh, uh, I was in the residency training program in the uh, Department of Pathology at the University of Leiden. Mm -hmm. And uh, the University of Leiden had uh, a, a kind of a mother-daughter relationship with uh, the University of Suriname. In, in Paramaribo, the capital of uh, Suriname, uh, there had been the possibility to... Uh, to do clinical rotations required by whichever medical uh, uh, medical school, mostly the Dutch medical schools that were using this uh, opportunity, or uh, the uh, the Surinamese students uh, did the, the basic years of medical school in the Netherlands and then the clinical years in Suriname. And then about halfway through my residency training, the the University of Suriname decided to have a full medical school, and they did this with the support of the University of Leiden. And so this led to quite a bit of staff support from Leiden to the University of Suriname in Paramaribo. And someday, uh, I was uh, almost at the end of my uh, residency, uh, the, the, the chair of pathology, we had a weekly meeting with the staff and also the junior staff uh, including the residents, uh, sat in, in in this uh, general staff meeting. And, and so he kind of, in passing, mentioned that uh, the dean of the medical school had uh, asked him to see if there was anybody in the Department of Pathology interested in, in doing a locum uh, in, uh, in Paramaribo. And I was instantly fascinated by the idea. I think I've had a, a global uh, orientation from early on. Uh, I did my primary school years in South Africa. And uh, I think that, uh, in, in hindsight, is one of the reasons why uh, all through my medical career, 
I've been interested in not only, let's say, the principal place where I work, but also uh, what I might be doing uh, elsewhere, notably elsewhere in, in uh, places where the conditions were quite a bit less favorable than uh, I was used to. And so um, when this uh, opportunity came, uh, I asked the, the chair of pathology, can I do this? Because um, I mean, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very young and very inexperienced. And he smiled at me and said, you can do this. And so that's how it came to be. And it, it's been a, a very uh, important experience in my life. Notably, because I was the only pathologist in the country. Now it's a small country there. In those days, there were 450,000 inhabitants. Mm-hmm. There are f- uh, a few less now because the, uh, when the, the, the country became independent in the early 80s, uh, there was quite a bit of migration towards the Netherlands. Uh, but the, even for that population, uh, to be the single pathologist was uh, not quite a, a daunting situation. And uh, early on in your career, not to have the possibility to uh, ask the advice and help of a, a close and more experienced colleague also made it a, a daunting experience. But it was a fascinating opportunity to learn tropical pathology, to be independent and to learn what independence means, even uh, at a young age and with little experience. To, to become aware of where your limitations are and to openly communicate your limitations and to find uh, opportunities to communicate with pathologists elsewhere. Nowadays, it's very, very easy with uh, the, the uh, digital slide tools we have and, and sure. internet communication in those days was quite a bit more difficult. But uh, to be on your own, and to run into your limitations and to communicate also your limitations to the clinicians that you work with has been also in the way uh, I perceived working as a pathologist uh, as a, a very important phase in my career. If, if I look back, one of the most learning uh, periods I've had were these nine months in the University of Suriname. Um, subsequently, uh, I went back between 74 and uh, 1980. Uh, back to Suriname? Back to Suriname for a, okay. a crash course in pathology. Okay. And so I usually spent between four and six weeks in, in Suriname to, uh, to do uh, the, the pathology course. Do you feel like you still have kind of a connection to the country just, just because you, you spent that time there early in your career? After the 80s, I've never been back, but uh, it, okay. it, 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 it remained, uh, it, uh, it's a sweet spot. I, I loved that period, and uh, I've, I've remained keenly interested in uh, notably how medicine and pathology developed in, in Suriname. Okay, okay. That's interesting. You know, as you, as you mentioned, your career has a lot of uh, international aspects to it and you've i mean Suriname hasn't been the only place you've worked you've been uh you've worked in switzerland belgium you had uh, i think there were visiting professorships in nepal cuba and i think a few other places as well so it was this i mean you you mentioned that you did primary school in south africa so it sounds like getting into 
other countries, at least for brief periods, was, was kind of intentional or was this some, something that just these opportunities came up and you found them interesting and you went? No, you know, in, in, in hindsight, one tends to think that uh, much of this was planned. In, in reality, I think I seized opportunities. If, if I talk to, to many of my colleagues, they, you know, they, uh, those that have, let's say, a, a bit more global orientation run into kind of the same type of opportunities. But there, if, if you're not keenly interested in, in uh, let's say, life and, uh, and in more particular uh, uh, pathology elsewhere, then one might to, uh, tend to forego on, on these opportunities. Cuba have a, a good trend in pathology in, in Spain, and after a Congress of Pathology in, in um, when was the 2001 in, in Berlin, he asked me if I would be willing to do the course that I did in that Congress of Pathology uh, in pathology course he was organizing in Cuba. I did that. And once you have a, a connection like that, uh, rather uh, likely that, uh, at least if, if you appreciate that, uh, you'll be invited back. And so I went there a couple of times and it was so much appreciated that they offered me this uh, um, invited professorship. Nepal was... Uh, something similar. I, w I was teaching on uh, in a, a, a postgraduate course. I think it was in 2006. Postgraduate course in Lillehammer in Norway, and get these uh, courses always start with uh, let's say a very informal uh, pre-course party with all the faculty and, and all the students there. And uh, I was chatting along with uh, some of my friends there, and uh, was approached by. A, an Asiatic uh, looking individual who looked at me and said, uh, I know you. And so I was very surprised because it, it, I had no recollection of this, of this uh, who appeared to be a colleague, not in pathology, it was in internal medicine. And so I asked him, but where have we met? And then he, he said, uh, Were you. In Maastricht, another um, medical school in the Netherlands where I was mm -hmm. chair of pathology in the 80s, in 1986, I said, yes, I was there. And he said, were you on the faculty of the summer course of problem-based learning in Maastricht? And I said, yes, I was there. And so he said, I was a student there. I was oh, totally wow. Because that, this, this was 20 years later. Yeah. And so I asked him, how in, in, in the world is it possible that 20 years later you still remember me? And he said that, that was very simple. The, the course was kind of two weeks of brainwashing in problem-based learning. And right in the middle, there was the guy who had some critical remarks about uh, not, not necessarily uh, problem-based learning as such, but the way it was conducted in Maastricht. And I think it, that that's the reason why he remembered me anyways. He, asked me if I was still interested in uh, medical education uh, because he was setting up a new medical school in Nepal. And uh, in those days, I was uh, uh, dean of education in the University of Lausanne in, in the middle of a, 
uh, a project of, of total curriculum reform. And so I could uh, wholeheartedly say, yes, I'm still uh, fully involved in not only teaching pathology, but also, let's say, uh, the revamping medical uh, curricula. And so uh, I became a member of the curriculum committee of this uh, new medical school in Kathmandu. And uh, I've, I've, I've gone there ever since. Uh, usually I spent about a month, two periods of two weeks in, in Nepal. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, with uh, the, uh, the corona disaster uh, that fell through, but in September I go back to Nepal. Belgium is uh, it's right next door. We are very close to Belgian pathologists, and so yeah, uh, the the Free University in Antwerp uh, asked me uh, to just uh, after I had retired if I was interested in uh, teaching uh, 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 somewhat on I, I tend to call this meta pathology. So it's it's more like the pathophilosophy, if, if you wish, not the, the hardcore. Uh, the histopathology, but uh, the questions around how, how do you do this? What, what's, what's the heart of pathology? So that was uh, the, the Belgian connection. And in Switzerland, that happened in, in uh, the mid-90s. Uh, I was chair of pathology in Rotterdam, and uh, I had been uh, going to Switzerland uh, almost each year for the, 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 the 20 years before that because uh, I've, I've done quite a bit of mountaineering in my life. I got the invitation to, uh, to take a look at the Department of Pathology in Lausanne to see if I was interested in, in, in becoming the chair and the director of the institute. And uh, in the end, they uh, made me an offer that uh, I couldn't refuse. And so that's how I ended up in Switzerland, and uh, so the last 15 years of my uh, very active academic life, I spent in Switzerland. Okay, okay, that that's interesting. Now I know you've done a little bit of traveling. That's kind of been not necessarily for for work for pathology. I mean, you mentioned before we started recording, you mentioned uh, a trip in Patagonia. Uh, can you tell me about that? Well, I'd like to cycle. The, the cycling came about when. <laughs> I, I contracted the hip problem ah, okay. um, at a relatively young age. I, I was confronted with uh, osteoarthrosis of both hips. And so since uh, quite a few years now, I, I'm, I'm, I get, get about on, <laughs> on two artificial hips. Yeah, when that happened, it initially it felt like a disaster. But then I, I switched from running to biking. An old family friend is a very uh, avid biker, and we biked a little bit in Switzerland every once in a while. And he came up with the idea to cycle the, it's called the Carretera Austral. It, it is uh, in the southern part of Chile, I think in uh, Patagonia. Uh, it's a road constructed in the 70s by uh, the General Pinochet who uh, was convinced it was important to, uh, to develop the southern part of Chile. And so uh, they constructed a road from a place called uh, Puerto Montt, about a thousand kilometers south of uh, Santiago, to uh, almost the end of, n- not quite the end of Chile, but uh, that's where the road ends, a place called Villa O'Higgins, about uh, 1,350 kilometers. And so we decided to fly all the way down south and to cycle all the way back to Puerto Montt. This was uh, before 
mobile phones. And a mobile phone network was installed in the work and mobile phones were commonplace and the mobile phone network was installed in Chile. It's a really an extremely remote place. We had all sorts of bad luck. But then uh, it's a bit like doing pathology as the single pathologist in, uh, in Suriname to uh, have to deal with what happens, even though it may be totally unexpected and sometimes in, in first instance uh, being perceived as, totally, as a total disaster was an, an exciting experience. And then a year later, uh, so this we did, the two of us planned the trip, and also the two of us, a year later with uh, the, the same uh, friend, <laughs> we did a somewhat easier uh, cycling tour on the uh, the frontier between Chile and the Argentine in the, in the area of uh, volcanoes and lakes. A little bit uh, further north. Oh wow! So it, it, uh, my my cycling in South America has been a, a wonderful experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Those those adventures like that. Sometimes the like you said, the disasters or whatever that happened. Those those often make for the best stories. You know, later Absolutely. later yeah. on, of course. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, back to pathology. Then now you eventually came to specialize in gastrointestinal pathology. In, in particular, uh, Barrett's esophagus and colorectal cancer. Now, how did how did you develop that interest? Well, in towards the end of uh, my residency training, that must have been something like 73, 74, was a period when endoscopic biopsies uh, uh, developed very strongly. The endoscopes had been around for a while. And the clinicians had started uh, uh, sending in biopsies, uh, but there was still a lot to be learned. And the uh, director of the Institute of Pathology in Leiden had received a request from the chair of gastroenterology in Leiden uh, to have one pathologist that uh, could uh, interact more closely with them. Uh, this was also the period when, uh, let's say, subspecialty in pathology was. Uh, there was things like dermatopathology and neuropathology, uh, and to some extent cytopathology were subspecialties, but uh, not the GI pathology. And so I stepped in, and uh, that, that's how it started, with uh, close collaboration between uh, the, the clinicians and, and, and pathology, uh, basically discovering uh, the, the range of, of possibilities, diagnostic possibilities you have uh, using uh, the the small biopsies that the the gastroenterologists uh, provide, uh, the interest uh, Barrett's came up a little bit later. It started with uh, colorectal cancer. Again, uh, the but um, I had a, a keen interest in the diffuse neuroendocrine system, and uh, some of my very early publications are on on uh, uh, the the diffuse neuroendocrine system and the. the, and the it didn't take me long to, to realize that uh, the um, the gut is uh, one of the largest uh, endocrine organs we have. Um, mm-hmm. And so my, my interest started with uh, the uh, diffuse neuroendocrine system and uh, the cells of the diffuse neuroendocrine system, all the hormone-producing cells in the gut. But uh, you know, once I... I was confronted with, let's say, the range of pathologies uh, more closely in, in 
uh, omdat ik bedoel de large barrel. Uh, and for the background, uh, let's say in, in cytogenetics, it was not very difficult to develop also activities in uh, colorectal cancer. In the years in Maastricht, we developed a program of research in, in colorectal cancer. And when I then went to uh, Rotterdam, in Rotterdam, uh, there was nothing much going on in colorectal cancer. I continued my um, uh, subspecialty in GI pathology there, but there was a keen interest on behalf of the clinicians in uh, Barrett's esophagus, and notably uh, Barrett's esophagus, uh, as you know, it, it remains a kind of a, a painful conundrum. We know that Barrett's esophagus, notably when dysplasia develops in Barrett's esophagus, there is an, an increased risk for uh, esophageal adenocarcinoma. And so how, if possible, to recognize the, the cases of Barrett's esophagus with uh, an acutely increased, it's not always a long term, but uh, an important increase in, in, in the risk for uh, the esophageal and carcinoma in Barrett's esophagus, uh, was uh, an interest of the department. And uh, we developed that uh, quite a bit further in the years that I was in Rotterdam. And it, it's been uh, an, an immense pleasure, on the one hand, uh, to be able to uh, develop basic research in this area and on the other hand to closely interact with clinicians to solve their uh, daily problems uh, in, in terms of GI cancer. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Fred Bozeman. We'll be right back. LabVine invites you to their Laboratory Transformation Seasonal School to help laboratory professionals gear up for the future of healthcare. This is a three-day online event taking place August 29th through the 31st. Day one focuses on change, transformation, and culture. Day two on staff optimization. And day three on implementation and change management. I'll be speaking at this event as well as a few other people who you have heard on this podcast. You can register for free for Laboratory Transformation Seasonal School by following the link in the show notes. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need. Comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, so I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Fred Bozeman on the People of Pathology podcast. You know, I read that in your research work, you've been trying to kind of combine experimental and diagnostic pathology. And I think what you just said explains that a little bit. Like you're, you said, um, you know, doing the research and, and looking into these things and then interacting with clinicians to sort of bring it to a kind of practical diagnosis. Is that, am I interpreting that correctly? Uh, that's, that's correct. So the, uh, the part of the focus has been uh, in developing uh, methods uh, as an adjunct to, let's say, morphological pathology 
to uh, improve uh, the, the diagnostic accuracy, let's say, uh -huh. like predict the value of what you see in the biopsy for the risk of uh, contracting an, an esophageal carcinoma or the, the, the development of colorectal cancer in, in a patient with, uh, with uh, uh, large bowel uh, polyps. But then the, the notion that pathology is not only the, the capacity to recognize histological patterns that allow you to make a diagnosis, but basically it's understanding disease. And if you want to understand disease, you have to look into more detail. And uh, the, the detail you need to go into is not always uh, really uh, uh, provided by uh, working with human material only. And so uh, to uh, develop animal models or in vitro models of the uh, human diseases I was interested in has been an important part of uh, my career from early on. And then more in general, uh, in, in uh, setting up the departments or uh, revamping the departments that I have chaired in my professional life, this has always been an emphasis uh, the best example is uh, pathology in in, uh, in Lausanne, in Switzerland. Uh, I took up the, the position of a chair of pathology in uh, 1996, and uh, it, it was a, a, a relatively straightforward, histopathologically oriented uh, department, but uh, well endowed in terms of uh, uh, staff and uh, budget. And um, I I had demanded the freedom uh, to reinvest part of this uh, um, significant endowment, uh, not in diagnostic pathology, but in setting up a division of experimental pathology. And the idea was that uh, experimental pathology and uh, uh, diagnostic pathology should go hand in hand. Uh, it's uh, pretty much the idea of the you could call it the metaphor between bedside and bench and back. Um, if you want to improve on, on diagnostic methodology, if you want to become better, to analyze what you do in, in terms of, let's say, the morphological criteria, that's one thing. But uh, in parallel with that, it's very important to uh, increase your understanding in, in terms of mechanisms of disease of the diseases you are interested in and, and responsible for in, in diagnostic terms. So that's how the uh, fascination for the combination of uh, diagnostic and experimental pathology came to be. And in, in my perception, uh, in, a, in a, a department of pathology, these two should go hand in hand, the, 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 the diagnosticians, so to speak, and the experimentalists should uh, seek other frequently and exchange ideas frequently, uh, uh, kind of speak each other's language. And the, the, a part of that uh, philosophy is also related to uh, my feeling that uh, the, the, in the biomedical field, there is a strong tendency for PhDs to take over, uh, and rightfully so, because they are an extremely important element in research in the biomedical field. But to, to maintain the link with clinical medicine, uh, to have clinician scientists in between, uh, in, in my mind, uh, remains extremely important. There is a tendency for those to disappear 
And uh, th that's one of the reasons why uh, all through my life I've emphasized the, the link between experimental pathology and clinical pathology, diagnostic pathology, and also in, in, in training uh, yeah. residents. Uh, in Switzerland, it was a little bit more difficult, but in the programs in the Netherlands, it was uh, quite possible to have a, a kind of an MD-PhD approach for residency training. You have to do um, some research during your residency training, just a confrontation with how scientific evidence is produced and, and how data is interpreted and what the value of what you read in a, in a, in a, in a paper is. I that, that's quite important. You, you know, you mentioned a little while ago about uh, increasing uh, understanding of disease process, you know, as we're studying pathology. And I think more recently, and we touched about uh, on this a little bit earlier, it's the area of molecular pathology, which is yep. exponentially increasing our understanding. And we talked about it earlier, how you kind of got an interest in that. There was an interview I saw with you, and you said it in the interview, it is absolutely essential for the younger generation to be adequately educated in molecular pathology, understanding mechanisms of disease and molecular methodology. Can, can you explain that quote? Like, why, why is that essential? Well, it, it uh, basically relates to what I was just talking about. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the simple way I've talked about it often is that pathology is more than the noble art of wallpaper matching, uh, pattern recognition, if you wish. It's understanding of disease. So uh, the uh, awareness and understanding of disease mechanisms in uh, not only in pathology training, I think for curricula in medical schools, it also remains uh, extremely important that understanding disease is the main emphasis in, in terms of your uh, academic education that uh, you, you need to come out of medical school with a, a well-endowed bag of tricks, uh, tools, uh, skills that allow you to, to, to diagnose and, and help patients. Uh, that's perfectly obvious, but I think in the background, uh, understanding disease is essential. And if, if we look back, if I look back over the years that I've been actively involved in pathology, it started with a kind of the, the, the classical Virkov notion of uh, the cellular pathology. And his idea of cellular pathology all, all started with using the microscope. But during my uh, active years, uh, we have seen as add-ons, it started with electron microscopy that uh, has almost disappeared, and the enzymes, the chemistry that uh, has still a little bit of value in, in things like uh, muscle pathology. Immunistic chemistry that has become the mainstay of uh, diagnostic pathology. And when I started in pathology, there was no immunistic chemistry. And by the way, proteins that you mostly identify using immunistic chemistry are also molecules. So it's not only, let's say, the nucleic acids in terms of molecular pathology. And then uh, in the 80s, uh, the, the, the importance of genes, uh, the, the abnormalities in genes uh, as a cause of cancer uh, came up. So um, the, the evolution from, let's say, pure morphology to 
trying to understand which molecules are responsible for what you see in terms of abnormalities in the tissue and uh, to, to uh, refine that over time with the availability of uh, more and more uh, powerful uh, methods uh, ending up, or it's not even ending up nowadays, uh, next generation sequencing, uh, single cell sequencing, single cell RNA seq to recognize the, the patterns of different kinds of cells in terms of uh, what their activities are. And then uh, it, it translates also into understanding the, 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 the mechanisms of response of uh, the immune response of the body to, to growing cancer. That has been a very important area of development in also in diagnostic pathology in terms of developing uh, predictive markers for the response to recent modalities of uh, immunotherapy, anti-PD-1, PD-L1, uh, things like that. So it's a, for me, it's a pretty self-evident uh, sequence uh, uh, from the morphology to understanding what you see in the morphology and a deeper and deeper understanding to what you see uh, in morphology and in that way also improve on diagnostic uh, capacities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of people say that molecular pathology is really is the future of pathology in general. Yeah, I, I, uh, the future, uh, it's, it's one of the uh, areas in pathology that's in, in, in strong development. And uh, uh, it, once again, in the combination of let's say, understanding what's happening and uh, extrapolating from that understanding to and how can we apply this on one hand in diagnostic terms, uh, to better identify new subtypes in lung cancer, for example, directly related to uh, therapeutic consequences in terms of a targeted therapy. That's the way it's going. Uh, for, for many pathologists, I think we, we will keep the kind of the classical approach, but for notably in the cancer field, but I'm pretty sure also in degenerative and inflammatory pathology we will see in, in the coming decade, I think, um, major developments using molecular methodology. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, you served a, you served a term as president of the European Society of Pathology. And I wanted to kind of get your, uh, your, your thoughts about, about that. Like, how did that opportunity come up? And, and, and what was that experience like for you? Well, I've been member of uh, the European Society of Pathology for quite a while. I joined them uh, early on in the 80s. And the European Society of Pathology, it was, it was uh, the society uh, was founded, I think, in the early 60s. And as it uh, so often goes, um, that this was uh, a group of uh, pathology friends that started this. And uh, it continued as a group of pathology friends, which the main activity was to organize a European Congress of Pathology every other year. And then uh, over time, uh, the, the society developed uh, working groups for specialty fields. And uh, I got a little bit involved in uh, the, uh, the GI working group, the GI pathology working group. And uh, the uh, Netherlands Society of Pathology had uh, asked me if I would uh, be available to represent them, uh, the European Society of Pathology as a, as a council. Mm -hmm. and members of the national societies are uh, 
elected as members of the council. So I represented the Dutch pathologists for some time in the council and uh, basically got a bit frustrated because the basic structure of the society remained a group of friends that uh, organized the European Congress of Pathology every other year. And uh, during a international congress of pathology between South American, Latin American Society of Pathology uh, and the European Society of Pathology, uh, a congress was organized in Brazil in, in, in I think it was 1996, no, uh, 2006, sorry. And uh, during that congress, I, I was approached by the, the, the president then, uh, who was a good friend meanwhile, and he, he asked me if I would be interested to become a president. And, and so I told him, I'm, I'm quite frustrated with the society because I, I, I think we are, we are not really developing. We need to, if, if this is to become, let's say, the home of pathology in Europe, a bit like ASCAP in, in the North Americas, then uh, the, the society needs to be totally redeveloped. Okay. And, and so he said, uh, that's exactly why I asked you, uh, because I've understood that, that you're a bit frustrated with the way things are. And so uh, when uh, this opportunity came up, uh, um, I teamed up with the, the ASCAP. Fred Silva, who was the I forgot the title of what he was doing, the Secretary General or something of the, of the ASCAP, had just uh, launched a, a member survey. And so I used the same member survey to survey the membership of the European Society of Pathology. And so based on the responses of this uh, survey, and uh, that interesting and overwhelming response, I decided to set up a, a strategy meeting. This was in 2007 in Istanbul. And uh, the, uh, the the starting point was uh, the, the results of this uh, survey, and the strategy meeting resulted in a twenty-one point uh, action plan. And uh, a, a few issues in the action plan were uh, to professionalize the society, uh, to come up with a, a, a congress each year. That's basically what we did. The, the society had about six hundred and fifty members when I, I, I got in. And we have over 3,000 members now. The, the Congress became an annual Congress uh, ever since uh, 2010. And uh, these Congresses are hugely successful. Uh, they attract uh, close to 4,000 attendees uh, each year. They have become also quite profitable for the European society in terms of revenue, allowing the European society to, to professionalize. Uh, we didn't have an office uh, back then. There's now an office in Brussels, and uh, there's a staff in Brussels. There's a whole range of activities, including quite a few educational activities, in addition to the annual congress. And so, it, obviously, that's not, it's not all me, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of and, and happy that I could contribute to this uh, very important uh, uh, evolution of the European Society of Pathology in now being really a leading force of pathology in Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of work. That's uh, that's interesting how that, that, that evolution kind of happened and you were yeah. kind of right in, in the middle of it. Now, 
in addition to all of these, you know, serving as president for the European Society of Pathology, all these other committees, uh, boards and things that you've been a part of, you've also written extensively book chapters and articles and things like that. And I'm curious if you think it, it like for the, for the kind of the younger generation of pathologists or pathologists kind of just coming up, is that important? Do you think that's important for them to do that kind of writing and, and uh, publishing and getting involved in committees and things like that, like you did? Well, you get, uh, I do. Uh, okay. You get, uh, to, uh, first of all, uh, um, it, it, this is maybe of primary importance for academic departments of pathology, but uh, research is important. And if I look back, the funnest things I've done in my life have been lab experiments. Okay. And by the way, they can also be very frustrating. And uh, so the, uh, the, uh, um, that, that's where the life of a, a, a clinician, scientist, or a diagnostic pathologist slash experimental pathologist has been interesting because if you have three months of failing experiments, but then uh, each week you can do a series of uh, good diagnoses, uh, you, you you do maintain a, a significant level of uh, job satisfaction, so I, th I think that's been a, a major advantage. So to get back to to your question, the the, the research uh, has been very uh, important for me, and, and uh, once again in in training young pathologists, a strong emphasis on understanding the disease. Uh, there's an extrapolation of that. Uh, being involved also actively with uh, laboratory research. Now, research is not only doing experiments or uh, reading the slides in your experiment or toying around with uh, cells in, 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 a, in a petri dish or whatever, but communication is an essential element. And for a pathologist, a diagnostic pathologist, communication is uh, totally self-evident because you have, the conditions have to be made aware of what you diagnose, but also for a, a, a young scientist to go out there to, to talk about what you've done and to write that up um, it has been, for me, a fun thing, not only in terms of doing it myself, but also in, in terms of uh, mentoring uh, uh, junior pathology, junior scientists in their career. Uh, the, 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 the committee work, uh, it's always difficult to, uh, to uh, attract uh, people for uh, things like this. It, it seems mm -hmm. like a, a, a total distraction of uh, the core of your professional activities. And um, the, the, there has been, and it's my impression that this is changing quite a bit, there has been a strong tendency uh, to focus on the old goals uh, because they, they they had made their career uh, in many ways already and so could devote some time to, let's say, activities that uh, were not all that rewarding in, in terms of furthering your, your academic career. But I think it's very important that the, the younger generation um, uh, of, of pathologists, as early as possible, gets involved in uh, organizational matter uh, at, the, in, at the department level but also at, at, at the level of, of your the professional societies. If you look at the, uh, the, the demographics of uh, pathologists in, in the US or in the Netherlands, uh, where you come, it's pretty similar. But more than 50% more than is below the age of 45, whereas uh, most of the, the, the members of committees uh, 
that tend to be much older. And I think it's important that the younger age bracket is well represented in, in these structures uh, because they bear a large part of the responsibility for our daily work. So uh, a wholehearted yes, I think, for the younger generation. Um, it, it's important to participate in this type of uh, responsibility and uh, as a pathologist, you have to be able to communicate and that's why, let's say, writing and speaking uh, is uh, essential for me. Okay, that's great. I, I, I like that. I, I wanted, to, wanted to end with another quote from you. Now, this comes from the Pathologist magazine, the 2015 Power List, where you were ranked number six. And the, the quote is, what you were asked, what was your advice to younger pathologists? And you said, be happy that you chose a very dynamic discipline in modern medicine. Can you tell me what, what did you mean by pathology being dynamic? Well, it, it's kind of what we talked about uh, earlier, uh, the evolution from uh, you look at the slide, you um, perceive morphological characteristics, you interpret morphological characteristics, and then uh, the, the next step is to identify the molecules that are responsible for the abnormalities that you see, to translate that into the new diagnostic methods to continue with this curiosity in what's happening at the tissue level uh, at, in, in, in the molecular in the molecular sense, the way we talked about it. Uh, that's what uh, I meant in talking about the dynamic field. The, uh, to put it in a very simple way, when I entered pathology in 1968, the H&E uh, was the endpoint. Mm-hmm. There was not much that went beyond what you can do with an H&E and, and a few special things, obviously. Now, it's the starting point for further uh, exploration into molecular uh, immunological uh, mechanisms responsible for uh, the response to immunotherapy. There is, I think that's another fascinating field, uh, the realization that uh, with deep learning, possible for a machine to recognize patterns that the human eye does not recognize. And so uh, even in uh, the the field of morphology, we're not at the end of the developments. Even in microscopy, and many times I I thought, well, the the microscopes we have now are so powerful that uh, it can't get any better. And then you learn about light sheet microscopy that allows you to do a 3D reconstruction without sectioning of the core tissue biopsy. And so that, that's what I mean by a dynamic evolution. Okay, I like that. Uh, so Dr. Bozeman, this has been really interesting, uh, you know, getting, getting to know you better and I mean, learning more about your career, and let's be honest, we've really just scratched the surface with a lot of the things that you've done. But this has been a really interesting conversation. I appreciate your time. Dr. Fred Bozeman, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. Great big thanks to Dr. Fred Bozeman. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. And these were the early days also of molecular pathology. So PCR just entered the, the routine diagnostics that we could detect even, even um, let's say, a small amount of cells. Uh, minimal residual disease was, was a totally new word. 
So everything that seems natural and, and obvious to us today was, uh, was new and tissue again at the time became a little bit old fashioned because everybody thought one can do everything, also pathology by you know, molecular stuff. So mine, grinding and mining the tissue. But I actually got, got really intrigued by combining the, the tissue and, and um, its molecular insights and, and the experimental, uh, let's say, aspects of, of all the models we had in our hands. And this is when I returned to Germany and uh, completed my residency and, and fellowship in, in pathology. You can hear more from Dr. Ralph Hoos in episode 97. Okay, so I really enjoyed hearing Dr. Bozeman's stories about working in different countries, especially Suriname uh, at the beginning of his career, and some of the lessons that he personally learned from that experience. And it was also interesting to learn about how he combines experimental and diagnostic pathology, and how he was right in the middle of the molecular pathology revolution as it was happening. As far as lessons to learn from this one, I think there are two major ones. The first is pathology is about communication. I mean, it's communication to clinicians, communication to patients, but also communication among each other. And the other lesson is that it is absolutely essential to learn about molecular pathology because this is going to be a large part of the future of our field. I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.